0: If we forced her to do the equation for sensitivity and specificity, that would have been the punishment.
1: It's sort of pathetic.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NeffJC journal clubs. NefJC is a Twitter nephrology journal club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk to your doctor. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Matt Sparks at NephroSparks on Twitter. Tonight, we have several other Filtrate plus three special guests. First, we have a Nephrology fellow from UC San Diego, Talar Karagian. Introduce yourself.
3: Hi, this is Talar. Um, I'm one of the fellows at University of California, San Diego. It's nice to be here. My Twitter handle is at TalarCourage.
2: Morgan Grams, the study author, please introduce yourself.
1: Hi, I'm Morgan Grams. I'm a nephrologist at Johns Hopkins. Uh, my
4: Twitter handle is Meg Two One Two One Two.
2: And the filtrates, Jenny.
4: My name is Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lin, and I am pleased to point out that for the first time, there are more women on this podcast than men.
5: <laughs> it's Women in Medicine Month, right? That's what this month yeah, is. Yeah, perfect. That's good. That's appropriate. Enjoy now we it. just need to finish editing and get this out before the end of the month. <laughs> <laughs> Will we finish struggle.
4: recording before the end of the month.
5: Oh no!
2: <laughs> and Jordi, introduce yourself.
0: Hey, I'm uh, Jordi Cohen. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiology in our, at the University of Pennsylvania. I tweet at Jordi underscore BC.
6: Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnel Hiremat. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H. Swapnel. And, and I don't work at the renal clinic, that's just my background. Uh, oh, that's absolutely,
2: uh, it's just horrible. That's just trolling, that's uh, awesome, actually. Yeah. That's really Can you move good. your head and just have clinic showing, please? And and Joel?
5: Uh, I'm Joel Toff. I'm a clinical nephrologist and renal educator
2: in Detroit. <laughs> Gosh, is this, did y'all plan this? The observation of protein in the urine dates back to Paracelsus in the 15th century and Frederick Decker's in the 17th century. In 1664, in his book about the therapeutic approach to medicine, he wrote, I have also found that urine, when placed on the fire, soon becomes milky, really smelled like milk, and had a taste of sweet milk. He goes on to say that we might conclude that this urine is a kind of clear and very thin watery chyle, or nourishing fluid. However, it was Richard Bright in 1827 who is credited with establishing proteinuria as the hallmark of dropsy, coagulable urine, and alterations in the kidney. In fact, Bright's study of the kidneys marks the beginning of kidney physiology as a science. Fast forward more than 100 years later, and in 1982, Verardi and colleagues in the Lancet reported the association of microalbuminuria. Or what was termed overnight urine albumin excretion rate with overt clinical proteinuria. 14 years later, in 60 patients with type 1 diabetes, in 1984, Morganson reported in a seminal study in the New England Journal of Medicine describing the association of microalbuminuria, defined as 30 to 140 micrograms per mill, in the urine, to the development of increased proteinuria and early mortality in patients with type 2 diabetes. Microalbuminuria became the standard screening tool and was incorporated in many landmark papers in the realm of diabetes, from DCCT, UKPDS, ADVANCE, and many, many others. In order to account for the variation in sample collection and concentration, the albumin to creatinine ratio, or ACR, was introduced. For these reasons, albuminuria, rather than proteinuria, is now considered the gold standard for quantifying urine protein, given the findings from the many more epidemiological studies and clinical trials. In fact, albuminuria is incorporated into the definition and staging of CKD. The KDGO guidelines recommend screening for and monitoring albuminuria. Moreover, albuminuria is utilized in in a myriad of predictive models for the development of kidney failure, cardiovascular outcomes, and the timing of other clinical outcomes. For example, the Kidney Failure Risk Equation, or KFRE. Proteinuria is still measured, and we have a real clinical need to convert proteinuria measurements to albumin measurements in order to use these samples in these calculations. First, the urine albumin test costs more and has not made its way into standard clinical practice throughout the world. Instead, some still use the urine protein to creatinine ratio, or PCR, and even the urine dipstick. In theory, total protein in the urine includes albumin and non-albumin proteinuria, But in some conditions, for example, light chains or myeloma, the non-albumin proteinuria may predominate. Usually, albumin is the largest contributor to proteinuria, making up to 50%. Due to cost and resource constraints, protein creatinine ratio and urine dipstick measurements are often the only available assay for proteinuria. In order to use these values in the various risk prediction models, it is important to find some standard way to convert this enter the current study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine and discussed on NEFJC just last week. Morgan, can you give us some background about how this project started?
1: Sure. So um, we we work in the CKD Prognosis Consortium. And uh, what that is, is it's a global consortium of, we have about now 80 cohorts uh, and about 12 million participants um, from all over the world. And so our requirement in order to um, give your data to the CKD prognosis consortium is that you need to have GFR, um, a measure of albuminuria, and prognosis, so um, estimates of ESKD or um, mortality. And what we found is that you know, different cohorts have different measures, as we know as nephrologists, and so we were really looking for one some way to harmonize um, the ACR, the albumin to creatinine ratio, and the protein to creatinine ratio measurements. So this has been sort of a pet project of uh, mine and the biostatisticians probably for the last seven years. So we are so excited to see this come, you know, in, finally into into fruition. Uh, because we knew that the current the conversion that we had been using before was not that good.
5: And what was that? What was the previous conversion?
1: Different for men and women. It's it's like divided by 1.8 and 2.2. 2. But close to, to half
5: you. half of proteinuria was considered to be albuminuria with some
2: variation, 10 or 20 percent.
1: Exactly your side. by gender. Okay. Yes. Well. Well, you can so tell I us. I mean, that that I'd
2: like to know how these cohorts were assembled. And I think to me, we measure these things so frequently. It was a little bit shocking to know we hadn't already done this.
1: So to be fair, it was done sort of, we call it like a vanguard study. The Canadians, they recently did a paper in which they developed a conversion equation from PCR to ACR in Canada. And that was published in Jason earlier, I think in 2019. It's a really nice study. You know, we had also sort of concomitantly been working on this, and we obviously have more cohorts from different parts of the world, and so we wanted to see if we could come up with something that would sort of be applicable to many different cohorts in many different settings.
2: Maybe go to Talar and talk about her view of proteinuria and albuminuria in fellowship.
1: It was great to
3: read about the background of how the study came together, because of the gap that I can attest to in our practice where we mostly just get protein to creatinine ratios. uh, And I I see some albumin uh, to creatinins. Uh, especially in our diabetic patients who closely follow with endocrinology, but this really resonated with me in terms of its utility to have a way to convert from one to the other and improve our accuracy with our equations that we that we use.
1: You know to to be fair, it was not our intent at all to to make it easier to measure proteinuria. You know, protein to creatinine ratio, and then convert it to albumin to creatinine ratio. I think that might be sort of going backwards, right? Because there's all these efforts to standardize urine albumin testing. We're never going to standardize urine protein testing, uh, just Wh- because there's why? so many different there's so many different proteins. In urine, so you know when you're when you're making an assay for it, some labs measure one protein, another lab measures another protein. So across different labs, they're not the same. And so I think the urine albumin should be standardized in the next year or so. I'm not on that committee because we know it's a more precise test. I think that the field. Needs to measure urine albumin more. However, for research purposes, um, and even you know for screening purposes in other countries where, let's say, dipstick is only used, we thought it was a, a good idea to come up with this equation.
6: You want to go ahead and get to the uh, get to the methods? Yes. So the methods, and I'm happy Morgan's here and, and Jody's here as well. So if I get some of the stats um, stuff wrong, please correct me. Uh, and I, I'm trying to give a very high level uh, view here. So this is as morgan uh, as dr grams alluded to this is from the chronic renal failure sorry the chronic kidney disease uh, prognosis uh, consortium so it has uh, roughly 80 cohorts but in this case they were trying to get at cohorts which had a few characteristics so unlike a study where you would have say you know eligibility criteria for patients here here ta- you're, uh, you're talking about eligibility criteria for the cohorts so in this case they needed cohorts which had you know adult patients of course But those with more than 200 participants uh, and those that had a measure of both the albumin to creatinine ratio and the protein to creatinine ratio or a dipstick, because those were the two methods you're trying to compare to the ACR measured on the same day, as well as you're trying to have like a full spread, right? You're not trying to have patients just with a small amount of microalbuminuria or all with nephrotic range. So trying to get the full spectrum. So I think those were the overall kind of uh, uh, eligibility criteria for studies
5: um, Would we have a sense of the timing from the earliest to the latest? Like, how is this 10 years or 20 years worth of data that was being looked at? Morgan, do you have a sense of that?
1: Um, That's a good question. We have so many cohorts. Uh, right. Probably it's like Maybe at least more, 15 right?
6: years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because there's a, there's a RENAL and IDNT trials. In oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Oh. All yeah. the way so that's even like 20, 30
0: years, right?
6: Right. Yeah. These, uh, I guess everyone is invited to participate in this project and based on the criteria. So they ended up with about 33 uh, cohorts uh, with almost a million participants. And if you look at the trials that are included, uh, sorry, studies that are included, there is the IDNT and the renal, which are trials. Uh, all the way to, say, the Crick uh, study, uh, which is, you know, the chronic renal insufficiency cohort we had, Dr. Feldman, uh, a few episodes ago, you know, and many other cohorts. There are a couple of Canadian studies I see in there, uh, cohorts in there as well. Uh, one from Sunnybrook, one from the Can Predit and and so on and so forth. There are many different so on. So it's really a global uh, you know bunch of cohorts that are included in this. the The primary outcome here is to evaluate correlations between the protein creatinine ratio and the dipstick versus the ACR. Now, how do you do that? It's a linear regression model, you know, very simply speaking. Uh, but then you uh, know, Jodie's here, and she had thrown me a question uh, a few episodes ago when we were talking about the Aldo. Uh, about the fact that they, when we were, um, this was a study from uh, uh, Ann and Vaidya, where They had a similar issue. They had like five different cohorts that were assembled together, and they had individual participant data. And, and as Jody pointed out, they didn't do a meta-analysis. But here I mean, they actually, did. Actually, it was a meta-analysis. In this case, they did do one. So they used uh, you know, meta-analytic methodology, which is you know completely appropriate. But uh, a slight different twist on that is, uh, let's say you're doing a meta-analysis, and I'm trying to say, hey, what is the overall albuminuria? So that's one outcome from all these studies that it's, you know, I just combine them together. In this case, we had, we just don't have albuminuria. You have albuminuria, you have proteinuria, you have, you know, stuff like age and sex and, and diabetes and hypertension in there. So you've got multiple things you're trying to combine. So so the it's called a multivariate meta-analysis, uh, you know, I won't bore you with too many details, but it's like, you know, it's just a... Too late. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can see Matt's eyes are already closed over there. Uh,
2: I was just thinking about my mouse colony. That's it. <laughs>
6: <laughs> you can, it, it, you can amazing, analyze mouse. Mice. The
5: amazing thing that they didn't have an anaphylactic reaction when you said meta-analysis. That was incredible.
6: Good work on yeah. that. On the basis of the PCR and the dipstick, can you predict the ACR? And in this case, so they have got an observed ACR, and then they use uh, all these other uh, variables to predict the ACR, and they see how good is the fit. So that's one part of the study. Uh, another part of the study is to uh, say, hey, you know, how do we use these? We don't just try to have a number. We use thresholds, right? So we say, hey, the ACR is less than 30 or the ACR is 30 to 300. So we try to say is using this conversion, how? We, what is the sensitivity, what is the specificity, What's the, you know, positive predictive value, negative predictive value for that? The next thing we do often is like, as Matt alluded to, there is the Tangri equation, sorry, the uh, kidney failure risk equation, uh, which was, you know, produced by Nav Tangri, who's a nephrologist in Winnipeg uh, now. uh, But I think he did that when he was at Tufts with Andrew Levy. So the KFRE equation, that has ACR in it. People use that for prognostication. They use it for, you know, planning access and what have you. So if we are using this predicted ACR, how well does that equation perform? So the I mean, if I have to... We don't do that. Right. Right.
1: (laughs) We don't don't see how well it performs. We just say, how much does it match? So if we use PCR and we convert it to ACR, does it match the ACR prediction? Right. And is that because you did not have outcomes? That's right. So, you know, in order to have enough people that had sort of concomitant PCR and ACR or dipstick, we, we didn't have enough co- cohorts that had enough ESRD outcomes.
6: Right. And it, so it looks like it's a project which will happen a few years down the, la- the road, perhaps.
1: Yeah, we're, we're trying to work on that, too. Yeah. <laughs> awesome.
6: <laughs> Can I just ask
2: a question? This is just from why include the dipstick? It seems like so inaccurate Always well, it's the only one that's not controlled for concentration. But was it always going to be put in there because uh, or is it so, something you always yeah. wanted to do? It seems to me like I was literally so we always surprised. wanted to do
1: the PCR, you know, because obviously it seems like, oh, this is really usable data, but we don't know how to harmonize. Right. But then I was I was in the Kdigo early CKD meeting. How do we detect CKD early? And you know the KDGO meetings are attended by people from all over, and a lot of places are using dipstick as screening, and so obviously that's much cheaper than if we were going to use ACR or PCR. And so then I thought, well, maybe we should add that in um, because I think it's useful. We don't, we have no idea how how sensitive or specific um, you know a dipstick of one plus is, and you know, and also within research studies, if we have a million people with dipstick but only. You know, 100,000 have ACR. It seems like we should be able to use that data somehow. Um, so, those were the two motivations.
2: Well, I, I'm not saying it to say that it's uh, that you, I mean, I'm glad that you did it. And, uh, but I was a little surprised because I always look at your and Dipstick and like, yeah, you know, how accurate is that? Probably plus or minus 200. Uh, so, the fact that it's now we have some data on it, I think is very useful. So, thanks for including that.
0: Yeah, I'm a oh, wow. fan. I am um, as somebody. I, I do a lot of research in electronic health record data. And a huge problem, as Morgan mentioned, that we run into is confounding by indication for why someone gets a urine protein test done. Usually if someone has an ACR or UPCR performed, it's because they already have advanced poorly controlled diabetes or there's a reason somebody is really looking uh, and expecting to see an abnormality there. Whereas often we want to know also just in the general population of people who are just coming in and having other screening tests done. And, and DIPs are done much, much more frequently in those settings. Uh, so it's it's really helpful to address that. Even if there is problematic and maybe doesn't perform as well, at least we don't have to throw out that data.
1: Yeah. So I think echoing what um, Jordy said, it's sort of pathetic, but, it, you know, within diabetes, only 50% maybe are have ACR. Within hypertension, it's like 5% have quantitative measure of proteinuria, either PCR or ACR. Um, it tends to be only the nephrologists that measure PCR. Everyone else does ACR, but not very many people are doing it either way.
5: Oh, Let's well, yeah, not actually- still the beans on the results yet. Um do we, is there anything else? Can we talk about what the hell is a C statistic?
2: That's when you see a statistic and you just run. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, there were C statistics in this one. And I also
6: found them in other. Right. When you're talking about how, how good, you know, does a uh, observed and uh, predicted match. This is this is one of the things that you look at is the C statistic. I don't th- I don't have a nice intuitive logical way to explain that to you. I don't know. Do you have a better way, Jordi? C
0: stands for concordance. So it tells yeah. you how well everything matches together. So a perfect
6: that's- C statistic is a 1.0 type of thing?
0: Yeah, 1 is 1 is the best and you never see it. Uh, if you can go if you can go from like 0.9 to 0.91, that's a pretty impressive uh, change.
5: Oh, really? Okay.
1: Okay, cool. But I wouldn't, I mean, this, for this study, I wouldn't harp on the C statistic too much, right? Like, yeah. that's kind of maybe not the, the statistic that you want to go into so much. Morgan,
5: wh- 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 which one do you think is important then? Help me out.
1: Well, so what I would say is, you know, I mean, it depends what you're going to highlight, but sensitivity, specificity, that's important. Um, you know, you could also, I think the prediction interval here is super important.
5: Walk me through what do you mean by prediction interval.
1: So if you go to um,
0: table three,
1: yeah, table three. So something that we did, we just, we wanted everyone to know, like this is, you know, our our equation will convert this, but it's not super accurate, right? So a prediction interval, um, 95% chance that if you measured an ACR at the same time you measured this PCR, the ACR would fall into this interval. And so you can look, you know, it's pretty wide. While I would say- Help that, me out. Uh,
5: how, how, how do you read this? I, I really have no idea what's going on in table three. I'm glad you called that out because it's totally confusing to me. So walk me through like, so I get a PCR of 500.
1: Okay. So let's do the crude model. Okay. So, cool. so this means like we're not taking into account hypertension, diabetes, sex, which to be honest, weren't huge risk factors. So they didn't change the relationship too much. So the PCR of 500, that means if- I measured your urine PCR on the same day that I measured an ACR, and I got the value of 500. The converted value for ACR would be 220. Okay. Um, however, 95, you know, that's only the mean if I did yep. this a thousand times. If I, I did it on you, the 95% chance that it would fall between 113 and 427. And so this is milligrams per gram. Does that, that make sense to you? That
5: totally makes sense. And that is pretty wide. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
1: So that's why, you know, I think some of the other studies have shown like 95% confidence interval. The confidence interval is for the mean. This prediction interval is for like an individual person. So this is not perfect, you know, but it gives you a best guess.
2: But if you were to measure an ACR or a PCR in a person three days in a row, you likely are going to get uh, values that would not be perfectly, you know, but it... It'll be within the range. And I think that's important to realize. Well,
5: and, that, and that, I guess that's my question. Does on an, in, does a, an individual person have a pretty constant ratio of albuminuria to proteinuria? Or, and so that if you were to do it three times in a row and it was you know 200 the first time, it'll be 200 or close to it every, every single time, or will it be 200 one day and 400 the next day?
1: So I, I don't think I can answer that from this data. You know, we did have multiple measures for multiple people. We did it We did it both ways where we took multiple individuals. So like, you know, if you had this done on three days in a row, um, and we also did it with only one um, observation per person, one day per person. And the results were very similar, mm-hmm. but we didn't specifically look at your question. Okay. I don't think we had good enough data to do that.
5: And remind me one more time, this, this ratio, this range is called
1: the, what's it called again? Prediction interval. The prediction interval. Thank you.
0: And just to jump on that for uh, folks who sort of trying to wrap their heads around it, difference between this and the 95% interval is that this includes a predicted error. It includes its own separate equation that takes into account sex, that takes into account diabetes status, that takes into account your hypertension status, and how likely you as a person, based off of those, those risk factors that you have, are going to have error around that variable, like how likely it will be within that range. Um, so it's a it's an extra step of complexity than what's usually than what we often see.
5: Yeah, the equations were incredibly complex. I was like, <laughs> I'll just punch, I'll just punch them into Excel and I looked at the equation. I was like, no, I'm not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's our specialty. Yeah, I think that the reason why they're so complex is you know, I know you were saying that you just divided by two. and so that was you know that was sort of. The impetus, because we knew that that was not good. Um, So it's, they're not related on a linear scale. You know, so when you just divide by two, that's a linear uh, Mm -hmm. relationship. Mm -hmm. It's a log log um, scale. So that means like a percentage change in ACR relates to a percentage change in PCR.
0: Oh, yeah. I was going to say, and Morgan made the point, normally in a prediction type of model, um, we would be talking about things like calibration and discrimination and factors like that. But in this particular study, because of the goal of it, that's not coming up. We're talking about very different metrics and we're going to be discussing the results. Um, And so a lot of this was already alluded to, um, but I'm going to just... Throw in some of the more, some additional details, um, so the cohort was almost a million individuals when they combined all thirty three cohorts. This this combined meta individual level meta analysis. Um, so it was it was nine hundred nineteen thousand people from across twelve research studies and twenty one clinical cohorts, uh, and it, we actually do have the years. It was between nineteen eighty two and two thousand nineteen. So this was from the year before I was born. Uh, through, the, through just about the present. Um, and uh, the average age of participants at the time of their measurements was 61. Uh, 50% were female. Good job. And uh, only 4.8% were black. Uh, 56% had diabetes. Uh, and 72% uh, had hypertension. Uh, overall, uh, about 15% of individuals had a dipstick that was positive. Uh, that, what
5: percent had a dipstick positive?
0: Fifteen, including trace through uh, through two plus, had uh, had a positive urine dipstick. Fifteen percent,
5: right? And that and the and that's consistent with the very the average albumin ACR being very low, right? It was like fifteen yeah. or twenty, something like that.
0: The median ACR was fourteen, and the median PCR was one nine, was uh, one ninety seven milligrams per gram. And that already doesn't make doesn't quite compute with that two to one ratio.
5: Right, 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 so. right, right, right. Well, and and in that, that graph. Was that uh, yeah. uh, figure? Oh, there's no number because it's the only it's figure. The figure. It's <laughs> the figure.
0: Uh, so yeah, it's a pretty cool graph because you can really see how under 50 uh, milligrams per gram of uh, of uh, urine protein creatinine, how you really have a huge play. Um You don't have a very close relationship, but as soon as you go 50, there's this very, very sudden um, shift where you see there's there's more of a linear relationship. And then there's an inflection point at 500 milligrams per program of uh, protein-creatinine ratio where it shifts. And this is where Morgan was getting at, where you can't just divide by two uh, because it changes depending on how high of a um, PCR you have. And at that highest level is where you see the closest relationship between PCR and ACR, where they predict each other the best, and you see that later in the the models. Very cool to see visually like that. Uh, So I encourage anyone who doesn't have the paper in front of them to just open up that figure because I think it's quite striking to us to to those of us who are clinicians and have tried to make these associations in our head to see just where how clean those inflection points are.
5: One below 50 is it, that just baked my noodle when I looked at that. I was like, what the hell is going on there? That is so
1: weird.
0: Yeah. So for example, there's one, you can see that there's an ACR of 300 correlating to a PCR of 20 um, with one of the lines, for example.
1: Our, our thought on that was, if you've got someone with no albumin, you know, with very, very low levels of albuminuria, you shouldn't be measuring PCR on them, right? Because they're, they're all over the place. So, you know, if you've got someone who's got A1 disease or A2 disease, you kind of always need to be measuring albuminuria because the conversion is just so, so bad.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to me because in my mind, I always thought you'd be more likely to get people where you'd have this abnormally high PCR, like where we capture accidentally um, non-albumin protein in the urine when somebody has a myeloma or if they have uh, an MGUS, whereas uh, the, the, here it's the opposite where we're seeing very, very high PCRs, but it's the precision issue.
5: Well, and That's exactly right. This is, this is, the, this is the inability for whatever te- assay they're using to even detect protein, mm-hmm. right? It's just a failure of the
2: assay. Yeah.
5: Yeah, that's crazy.
2: Yeah, but the assay for it's unfair comparison. You're looking at an ELISA for an albumin and a chemical reaction like the Bradford assay for protein. And so there's no wonder albumin's going to perform a lot better because it, there's a lot more specificity built into those tests.
1: Yeah, that's why you should measure albumin to cranine ratio
2: if you have it. But we did <laughs> have on the chat we we noticed that there are people from around the world that don't have the ability to measure albumin creatinine ratio like we do in the United States. So, but and uh, it's almost like- they can
1: do dipstick. I don't think they have the ability
6: to measure protein to creatinine ratio. Right, right. It's often the dipstick. Aspect. They're just doing dipstick alone. Right. Yeah, and and there's a there's a cost aspect as well, right? It seems that ACR is more expensive and. and some parts I think of that the world.
1: that is like sort of the, you know, that was my impression. But then I went actually and looked at um, in Epic, and really, it's not for us. But I think it varies from hospital to hospital.
0: So, what is the reason for PCR rather than ACR? Is it just purely heuristic? Is it because my professor told me to do it, so I do it? I think so.
5: Well, there were a number of people on the on the chat that said that their lab reported up to like. 300 or 500 albumin it and then it just said it level. stopped so it if you is greater than
2: a product it, syndrome like bingo. say membranous uh and you're getting albumin and it just doesn't tell you the exact amount and you can't tie, you know so how do you do that does
5: anybody here have that problem
2: like we get albuminuria going all the way up
6: so so our hospital lab does but uh we have we have a lab which is outside the hospital uh and that does not that does exactly like this oh it's more than whatever this number so Uh, I think they're still tied to that microalbuminuria concept, so it's really useful only when it's low.
3: I think we report it all the way up.
2: We like to see very precise numbers. That would drive me mad to see greater than 300. I want to know a number!
0: And so speaking of which, uh, so I was mentioning that the... the we saw that we tended to see closer performance at higher ranges. Um, Going back to table three, which Morgan had discussed a little bit earlier, Morgan went through the crude model results and a couple of examples there. Uh, The way that this chart works is, um, it's like a tree. Um, So it's choose your own adventure. You start at the top and you have- This is truly the the
2: worst choose your own adventure game ever.
1: (laughs) Are you kidding? For nephrologists, it's the best.
2: Yeah. Not for the patient. No
1: one wants to be down in the bottom. I'm going to
2: go on vacation in a few weeks and this is what I'm bringing. It's either the cave of time or the albuminuria tree.
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> my people. And so you choose if it's a male or a female, and then you keep going down each branch then to whether they're hypertensive or not. And clearly the majority of people were hypertensive. So you're going to, and we're going to have most of our patients falling in those ranges and then whether they're diabetic or not. And this again gives you that range, that 95% um, likelihood that if you as a person fall into that category, that that if if you were to have this test on over and over, you would fall into that range. Um, And then in terms of uh, additional information, then there's the sensitivity and specificity. Uh, And so we have table four and table five show us the sensitivity and specificity of um, how well ACR predicted uh, PCR or how well, sorry, PCR was predicted from the ACR, excuse me the acr and pcr we saw really really high high sensitivity and specificity the sensitivities were mostly in the 90 percent like the low 90 percentages um whereas the specificity uh similarly was in the in the 90s particularly as you went to higher acrs and higher pcrs so
5: i'm I'm sorry i'm sorry i'm i'm missing this i don't understand what what are we what's the sensitivity what are we trying to detect here
0: yeah, so, so sensitivity is your usual screening test. So that tells you how well, how, how well you are actually capturing uh, people when you have a, a positive test from one versus the other. So if you say that you have an elevated uh, ACR over 300, then how likely are you going to actually also capture the PCR over 660 was the threshold.
6: So Joel, you have a puzzled expression on your face. Uh, can you explain to me what is the difference between sensitivity and positive predictive uh-huh. value?
5: Yeah, right. <laughs> I can. So sensitivity is a measure of the actual test, and the positive predictive value is highly dependent on the population that you're testing. Ah. Okay.
1: Although, okay. although sensitivity and specificity will vary, right, by the like sort of um, disease severity. So if you have a bunch of people with nephrotic range proteinuria, it may be different, right?
6: So, so Joel, uh, sensitivity is true positive divided by?
2: This is the thing I write right before I walk into the um, testing
6: gotcha. center. For the first yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just, waiting Just for that. divided by something. <laughs> yeah. <Device. laughs> yes. The answer is yes. It's true positive true positive plus false negative. Right. Because you want to find out out of all those who have the disease, how many are picked up and, and positive predictive value is the other way around. Right. So of those who test positive, how many have the disease? So basically, so if you positive, look at that,
2: you see that the sensitivities and specificities are much greater at both ends of the spectrum, but right in the middle it's a little bit wishy-washy. Is that kind of right? How I mean you have 70% in the middle?
1: Yeah, so the middle is when you're trying to so we tried to make this into like okay, so what would you do if you're going to do screening and what would you do if you want to do staging. So you know, the first, the ACR greater than 30 is the screening column. So if you were going to use PCR to screen, do people have A2 or greater disease, this is what you would use. But if you wanted to use PCR and say, okay, I can take this PCR and I can map people into A2 or A3 or A1, that's what the second column is. Um, and And the third column is, can I take this PCR and map people into A3? Does that make sense?
2: Yes, that makes sense.
1: So it's easy, you know, Your in in general, your sensitivity is going to be higher for screening because it's, you know, all you need to do is put people in A2 or A3. But if you're trying to put people in a kind of a narrower range like mm-hmm. A2, then your sensitivity goes down. Got it.
0: But the specificity was excellent, um, particularly at the higher range, uh, because you're very unlikely to be capturing people that are are negative. Like you're you're very like, unlikely to have um, negatives that are being incorrectly identified there. And then when we go down to the dipstick, however, as expected, it did not perform as well, particularly at staging. Um, it was. Moderately okay uh, in terms of the screening test uh, where we saw the sensitivities were in the 60s, 50s now compared to the 90s for um, for, uh, ACR versus PCR. And in terms of staging, um, we were sensitivities were in the 30s for the 30 to uh, for the 30 to 299 range. They were better. um, They were better in the higher range for an ACR of over 300 milligrams per gram compared to a dipstick of two plus or greater. We saw sensitivities more in the 70 uh, in the high 70 range, and specificities were excellent there in the high 90s. Again, because you're unlikely to get these negatives that were that were not not actually negatives.
2: Well, the dipstick's not helping its cause with its name, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> one one laugh, that's not bad. <laughs> I thought it was very funny. I was laughing, I was <laughs> just muted.
1: Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> but I'm um
2: Yeah, we'll, uh, we got a laugh track we'll put in on that. Uh.
1: <laughs>
2: but I think the, the key is that I can channel Morgan right now is that Still, uh, we need to be using albuminuria way more often. Is that right?
1: You've got me right.
2: You don't want us to go from <laughs> this, and that's what, for everyone listening right now. We're not. This is not opening up the floodgates for PCR. This is saying, hey, we need to be doing more ACR.
1: Exactly, and the you know the dipstick was more for countries that don't have available. You know they can't quantify. You know, could you use? a dipstick as a screening tool. Specificity, you want high specificity to rule in, right? And sensitivity to rule out. Maybe you want something a little bit higher um, specificity in order to rule in and do a second test. So that that was our
6: thought in this. Is this a moment I can ask about the uh, 24-hour urine? Because that seems to come up every time, and it, it boggles me. I have argued with so many people about it, but there are a lot of people who are still sticklers. Oh, why are you doing an ACR? You want a 24-hour urine.
5: What's the argument there? Walk me through that. What's what's? what's I mean- so,
6: so in the sense that you know, if you have a patient with a GN with a nephrotic syndrome or what have you, you know, the studies have all been done with 24-hour urine. That's the gold standard. Uh, I think. Uh, Professor Glasek jumped in a little bit and said, Oh, 24 hour urine.
2: Can I, get, I want to give my uh, very non scientific take on this. And mm-hmm. basically, if you do any protein creatinine ratio or album creatinine ratio and you have a larger urine specimen for as many hours as you can get it, you're going to have a more accurate value. And it doesn't have to be exactly a time 24 hour and figure out how much protein's in that sample, but you're basically going to normalize that specimen over a 24 hour diurnal variation. So that's pretty much what the utility of a longer sample is. That's
5: what but I we know that proteinuria is not constant through the day, right? It does. There is variation through the twenty-four. Hours that's why here, you
2: right? you collect the sample and then you do a, pro, a spot ratio in that l- large sample, and that will yeah um, normalize. Right. That. right.
6: Don't, but the only point, yes, yes that's accurate. But uh, you know, the point is that it's often an under collection or an over collection. Doesn't matter. Uh, that's good yeah. Yeah. To do yeah. The do the ratio is fine uh, on the under or over collection, and and there's a inconvenience. You know, it just won't happen. There's a cost and all those aspects as well. I, I don't know if, if I think Jordi wants to say something.
0: Oh, no. I was just saying, no, none of the people who are doing the 24-hour collections are looking at the 24-hour spot, though. It's it's never used for that purpose, so those who are doing it. But I agree with Matt's spa- with uh, I'm sorry. Matt's when
5: point. they do a 24-hour, they're just using it the milligrams of... Protein.
0: They're using the, the total milligrams yeah. so over 24 hours. Milligrams. And yeah, yeah. And, and per Swapnil's point, we, ha- we had this discussion too recently at the Aldo uh, freely filtered where we were talking about over collection and under collection of 24 hour urine Aldo, uh, where it's, it's very problematic we, and same with urine sodiums. Like we just, we don't, it's not, it, it's very, very rare that we get the patient that's doing the actual true 24 hour collection rather than that being the norm. Um, so I think there are just a lot of issues with the reliability.
5: Delara, how do you guys do twenty four hour urines out in San Diego? Yes. And when do you use them? And how do you use them?
3: Um, like what was just being said, a lot of the time it's uh for a workup of a GN or mm-hmm. uh, if we don't believe the spot protein to creatinine ratio and we just want kind of a better sample, sometimes we do jump to the twenty four hour collection.
2: Yeah, I've had situations where someone's in clinic and then you'll see their uh, album creatinine ratio is is elevated when you're treating them for whatever. And they're like, no, 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 can't be right. It's like, all right, let's do a 24 hour verify this and let's do a biopsy that happens just to like really convince yourself and the patient that's real.
1: Greg Miller, he gives an amazing talk on the urine albumin assay, the urine protein assay, and then also like what urine samples to use. Um, so he quotes, I was just looking this up, he quotes um, this um, paper by, um, I think it's, I don't know how to pronounce it, W-I-T-T-E, Vita, probably, Ganzavort. It was from Jason 2009. And so really the intrasubject coefficient of variation was exactly the same for 24-hour versus first morning void. So spot was worse, but it it sort of says to you that, you know, within, if you test yourself over and over and over again with a first morning void or a 24-hour urine, they're about the same. So I use that to sort of make me feel better about first morning voids.
6: Right. so And that's the point, right? Proteinuria does vary during the 24-hour period. It's the first morning that's important.
2: We had a postdoc that measured... 24-hour urine in 20 mice every day for uh, 21 days. He he left the lab shortly thereafter. Uh, And and you could really look at the variability in those scenarios. And also, it's hard to do those in 24-hour collections because you have to do it every day, exact same time.
6: But how many even um, in mice, it is difficult to imagine humans. Mm -hmm.
2: exactly how
0: many uh, how many of us are actually getting first morning urines is the other issue that's why you Uh, could do the 24
2: hour urine and do a spot in that and it's pretty much a morning a spot during the day it's 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 averaged over a larger period of time. That's why it's, you know, uh, and you occasionally see that reported
6: on a 24 hour urine. We are all convinced. It's ACR is the way to go.
0: Yeah, just curious how we're going to convince people to break their heuristics. Because I just, I I can't imagine like the renal fellows clinic switching gears. So how, how are we going to see this happen?
2: They're going to listen to Freely Filtered and they're going to be convinced that this is the way to go. We have at least 15 nephrology fellows from around the country that listen religiously. (laughs)
3: i think they should all look at the scatter plots in the supplemental that was my favorite part because just seeing
2: tell us tell us where that is again so we can get to Uh, it is it supplemental
1: yeah let me pull it up so the supplemental, really page 31 morgan knows the
2: page number
1: Well, I was looking at it, too, because I wanted to see if the um, 24-hour urine um, studies looked better than the non-24-hour urine studies. They don't really.
3: So what you can find, there's these beautiful graphs um, with the gray line, and then you can see all of the plots on both sides. And you can see how wide they are and how, how much variance there is and how big the splay is. And that convinced me. That was just like, this is why we have to get the albumin to creatinine ratio, and then just seeing the, also the width of that change as you get higher proteinuria, the test kind of seems to do a little bit better, so you know, maybe I would lean a little bit more towards the potent to creatinine ratios at uh, nephrotic range proteinuria or above, but definitely not. And you can see that beautifully on these graphs for the lower proteinuric patients.
2: The the thing that's great about the paper, though, is it brings this discussion to the forefront. Nephrologists love to see data before they make any decisions. And so that is why this is really important, because we can look at this and say, all right, I, I question what I'm doing. And I think that's the hardest part of medicine and it's it's a teacher to do something different. I had
5: no idea that the albumin assessment was so much more accurate and validated than the proteinuria assessment. I really had no idea and and once I read this paper I switched my practice the next day and my uh, my scribe was like <laughs> she has this kind of routine package of labs that she did and i was like okay and get the acr and she's like first of all she's like what's an acr
2: <laughs>
5: american, oh, college of, the american, american college and then i was like my heart and then and then at the end of the day she's like did you why'd you switch and i was Why like well yeah she did she she like, called me out on it and she and college. i said because i was wrong and uh and so but I, I think that this is the type of paper and education of uh the community it's improved my practice.
2: Uh, Talar, can you tell us uh, how you got on freely Filter tonight?
3: Uh, I went to this awesome conference called NBLU. And-
5: oh, I'm so glad you didn't say there was two guys in a white van that grabbed me when I was filling my car with gas and
3: then put me in the back and then put me on the back.
2: Joel, okay. calm down.
3: <laughs> and we all got to uh, make a presentation as fellows uh working with other fellows across the country and i guess someone liked my presentation here i am what'd you present on we were pitching business models for a hypothetical nephrology practice
2: and what was your where and where, where was your practice at
3: it was assigned to us but it was a napa
2: well that's, oh, that's well nice. you got napa kidneys i mean come on well she what had your a- business
1: model
3: Oh, it was
2: uh, Albuminuria for screening. Yes,
3: all the way. Album- Wine on dialysis.
2: <laughs> so well, she was picked uh, the for presentation, and and so her uh, her prize was to come on Freely Filtered and you know sort of talk about. Well, I thought she and lost, and
5: that's why she was on
2: Freely Filtered. This was the punishment. <laughs> no, this is not the punishment. People are just begging to be on Freely Filtered. Okay, okay. so we have pr- we have good take home message from the paper. Uh, yeah, let's we, do
5: Let's do our too long den read. So the, 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 the the take home points for this paper, point of the paper is there's been lots of real world data that's been collected assessing proteinuria in patients where they did not measure albuminuria, that they either captured protein to creatinine ratio or dipstick urinalysis. And that data right now has not been able to be analyzed. And though this data was collected and luckily this consortium had simultaneous collections of uh, either protein to creatinine ratio and albuminuria or dipstick Proteinuria and albuminuria, and the and this was an attempt to be able to correlate the proteinuria and the PCR data to the albuminuria, and they came up with a, uh, a what they call crude formulas, which allow you to just make that direct comparison. Or uh, well, if it wasn't crude, what was the other name for that? What was the other formulas
1: adjusted? Maybe Adju- mm-hmm.
5: ad- adjusted, in which divided patients up based on um, uh, hypertensive status diabetes status and gender and were actually just very slightly more accurate. Not a big, uh, not a big improvement on the equations and that they were able to find that uh, they were able to make this compare this uh, adjustment. But the take home message is if you have access to measuring the albuminuria, that's what you want to do. You don't want to rest on this formulas. These formulas are really there for either countries where they don't have access to albuminuria or historical data where this this data is already collected and we don't want to throw that data away where we want to use it. And that the the study authors went through and not only were they able to show uh make this conversion, they were able to show that it worked for uh categorizing albuminuria into uh, the A1, A2, and A3 categories that were established by KD go uh, less than 30 milligrams per gram, 30 to 300 and greater than 300 for A1, A2, and A3. And then they were also, they tossed the same this conversion equation. There's a converted albuminurias into the uh, Tangri kidney failure risk equation, and the equation still worked. What, what did you find there? I don't even understand. How, what, what, why is that part of the paper? What, what, what was that all about?
1: <laughs> well, I have to say that your sum up, I loved it. My heart is warm. Um, but um, the reason, I, I think we put that in there because one of the reviewers asked for it. Um, but basically, all it is <coughs> is, um, you know, a change. It, all it is is comparing those people, um, you know, the KFRE based on real ACR and the KFRE based on imputed ACR from PCR. So that's all it is. It's just a, you know, scatterplot. The
5: power reviewers wield. It really, (laughs) it's it's pretty amazing.
2: I'm imagining that uh, cartoon that shows your paper when it's submitted. It's a pretty sleek car. Not a lot of fanciness to it. But, you know, you look at it and it's like, that's a car. And then um, after the reviewers get it, it's like has a whale tail fin on the back. It has uh, really crazy tires and uh, wheels going off different directions. That's that's what I feel like what happens to your paper after it gets reviewed.
1: I think... You know, for the most part, you get it back and you're like, oh, this is so annoying. But then you think about it and you're like, well, I think I wasn't so clear. And well, yeah, that's actually a good point. So I think in general, it works. We don't often come with a whale tail off of it. <laughs>
5: the KFRE bit sounds like a whale tail. Uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm with you on that one. <laughs> okay. oh, God. It's
0: a bumper sticker of a whale.
1: Oh,
5: boy. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, secretion. Tubular secretions. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Talar, I know you came, I can't, you came equipped with a tubular secretion.
3: Uh Yeah, I can uh, share something that I've been recently getting into. Uh, so I'm in charge of sweet things in this household, uh, ice cream mostly, and uh, I discovered how to simplify ice cream for anyone who's interested. Uh, instead, I usually do like a ice cream maker that churns ice cream. Turns out not necessary, and you don't need more any more than two ingredients, just uh, heavy cream and condensed milk, and you can make ice cream. No whip.
2: Wow. I usually
5: just, I just go to Kroger. Two ingredients, automobile and money, and you can get your
6: ice cream (laughs) (laughs) too. Yeah. Yeah. So I know Jenny has an awesome tubular secretion. So I want to go before because that will, you know, she's going to overshadow everyone. So uh, I said, I would shout out to Catherine Glace. Uh, She's a nephrologist at McMaster. And I realized it recently that she's the one who, um, there's a systematic review in annals on using cloth masks in covid she's the one who and i don't know how a nephrologist came to do this study but she she's uh, spearheaded that uh, systematic review showing that even uh, masks made out of cloth are, are you know pretty good again okay, no trials of course but it's it's a reasonable um, uh, review of the evidence but they have a website also at clothmasks.ca uh, uh, we'll put that in the show notes uh, which tells you know people how to make a cloth mask uh, And and the cool part is that you know, it's an nephrologist who's made that, and a Canadian one, Jordy.
0: Can I do a shout out to the Replace COVID investigators and thank them for uh, all of their voluntary work? Uh, only, to... only
2: if you tell us the result. <laughs> <laughs> What is replace
5: so, COVID? What is replace replace
0: COVID? Replace COVID was it? It was. It's it's now completed. A randomized control trial randomizing uh, patients hospitalized with COVID nineteen to either continuing or withdrawing their ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Um, and it's the only one that's a multi international, multi center international study that's based in the U S. Uh, and we had twenty hospitals that actually uh, all volunteered to contribute their help um, in the U S. In South America, in Europe. This is the uh, and patients we, were
5: randomized to have the drug withdrawn. They were
0: randomized to have it withdrawn or continued open upon label? upon admission it was open label and it was only the the main um exclusion criteria was people who were uh had a major contraindication to either continuing or stopping their ace or a or b so as long as they came in he- like relatively hemodynamically stable and as long as they didn't have significant aki we define it as uh as uh kid go stage two um and as long as they didn't have um other like, ma- like major contraindications to stopping it like like Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, things like that. Uh, Then we um, we continue we 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 randomized them to either continuing or stopping it. Um, If they needed another antihypertensive medication because they were hypertensive, we we made it. They were excluded if they needed if they were on like multiple medications and they wouldn't have been able to be controlled. But otherwise, we just said we could control them with another med. And so we randomized 152 subjects. It's not that huge, but we're really excited about it. Um, Uses some really cool methods. It's it's something called a hierarchical outcome. that allows us to have a little bit of a smaller sample size and still have s- enough power to see a result. No, so, no What was that result? Uh, uh, no C-statistics. Um, and so <laughs> we uh, we just finished our last <laughs> data collection, and we'll be hopefully hopefully the results will be.
2: Well, congratulations! Very yeah, exciting. To see Great the work. That's so awesome.
0: It was all volunteers except for Brian Bird, who got lucky enough to get a freaking fast grant. <laughs>
2: How did that happen?
6: You know, I, I put in a, I put I did put for his one grant.
0: participant. <laughs> Yeah,
6: that happens, no, right? No, no. Like, uh, if you miss the wave, it's then, not.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's a good thing, right, that they were yeah. quiet. Um, yeah. and so yeah, it was it was all volunteers. So thank you to the replace COVID investigators.
6: And I think uh, Jordi wrote up the protocol as she was. Uh, were you stuck in Chile at that time? Yeah, I was writing or?
0: on my. I was writing it on my phone.
6: <laughs> yes. That's um, amazing. work. Um, I was
0: like March fifteenth on my on the phone while I was helping you guys do the FJC uh, COVID ace two stuff on a 30-hour trip back from southern Chile.
5: And, and yeah. do we have any prospective randomized data on this topic? Yes. Did you not uh, see my Twitter I mean, come on. No, so Where no have I don't. Been you been the last Matt, few Matt, days? I've,
2: you've been so, muted for a long time. So, we
0: have Brace Corona. <laughs>
2: right. so I, a, a I'm muting yet. this yeah. entire conversation, okay?
0: Um, I feel so brace. bad because Jenny has this awesome tubular secretion. But uh, So Brace Corona uh, presented the results at the European Society of Cardiology Conference on Tuesday morning. They had uh, randomized about 700 patients uh, to continuing or withdrawing their um, ACE inhibitors or ARBs. They were also hospitalized patients. Um, they ended up only with about 600 patients in their trial. They had to exclude 100 patients due to issues with randomization due to issues with good clinical practice and issues with other like major problems within their group. But they still ended up with 600 people. So it's much larger than our study. It's also much healthier than our study. I can tell you that they only had about 2% mortality rate in their study, which is very different than what we see in the US and in other parts of the world right now. So I think it was a very healthy. And
5: they found Um, their finding was
0: and they found no difference between continuing and stopping ACE inhibitors and ARBs. Sorry, that was the most important part. Uh, So continue them no matter just like what we said on FJC from the start, please don't stop these medications in patients who need them. We don't have any evidence to stop these medications. Um, And if anything, a lot of people are trying to look to see if they might be helpful, but we still have a lot to learn from that.
4: All right, we're ready, Jenny. Do it. So my tubular secretion is the discovery that Science Twitter had over the past few weeks that MC Hammer is one of the most influential members of Science Twitter. Why is this? <laughs> hey,
6: so who is MC Hammer? Yeah. So who is no, MC no,
4: Hammer? No name dropping on this podcast.
6: <laughs> well, I don't, it's I freely filtered it. filter time. He's a closeted
4: <laughs> nerd, right? Da, 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 da. Closeted nerd from Oakland. He's too legit to quit. Yeah, too it was like, too yeah. legit. Yeah. So basically in July, um, what, what the editor-in-chief of the journal eLife had noticed was this video of slime mold getting retweeted by MC Hammer. And I think people in the community were originally wondering whether or not this was a spoof account or if this was really MC Hammer. <laughs> and it turned out, yes, it really is the MC Hammer. And he just happened to be a science nerd all of his life and has been following like little, you know, Pops science articles. And then on Twitter, he's able to pick up little tidbits people have and retweet them. And so the, this editor in chief of eLife basically ended up talking to him and just asked like, this is really exciting. Like, how did you get into this? And he's they shared stories. And so apparently, since they both are in the Bay Area, MC Hammer is going to visit this guy's lab and everything and I was checking his feed this past week and he was retweeting something from Science Magazine and it's not just life science, it's also like physical science stuff with space and all that
6: stuff So,
1: and he makes intelligent <laughs> comments yes,
4: yeah. you know? he
6: seems to <laughs> understand what he's talking about and do his, you think
1: we can get him interested in Albuminuria? <laughs> <laughs>
4: potentially yeah, did
2: y'all know what the name of his most popular song was? you can't fund this <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I don't think that's the name <laughs>
0: From now on, all papers should either be considered one legit or two legit. (laughs) <laughs> Every scientific paper should be graded by, by level of
1: legit.
2: Yeah. If MC Hammer retweets it, what it's was too, this one? too legit to quit. <laughs> this was too legit. And only too legit.
5: I'm
1: sorry. I'm, I think the ACR-PCR one is still one legit. We got him. Got to get him to retweet it.
5: So Joel, do you have one? Yeah. So at the beginning of August, the University of Chicago Pritzker's Bowman Society did a um, webinar where they had four scientists talk about the issue of uh, race and EGFR and... And it was excellent, excellent uh, seminar. And they, it took a while for them to bring it online, but you can now uh, watch it online. It's really good. I'd highly recommend it. We'll put a link in the show notes. And I, Links to the uh, Saturday morning cartoon, the MC Hammer, where he was a spy. You know that.
2: Did not see the, the cartoon on Saturday morning. Oh, you didn't, you didn't, no, oh, you didn't watch the MC <laughs> Hammer cartoon
5: on Saturday morning? <laughs> oh. So it's good. Good stuff there. Dr., cool. Dr. Grams hasn't given her secretion.
1: Okay. All right. Well, can I just sort of do like a, a sappy one? Because I think I, I do need to thank everyone who participated in this paper. Chi Sumida, he did a great job. Girish Nedkarni, Hido Hirspink, and uh, Kevin Pokinghorn. It, like, it, it's great because it's, you know, people from the US, people from Australia, people from the Netherlands. I, I would say please join CKDPC if you would like.
5: How do you get the author order there's a lot of authors on that on that page
1: yeah it's hard rules so what we do we've got rules so we we Every, every paper that we come up with, we say, are you interested in leading it? If you can imagine, it's like, it's a lot of work to lead one of these papers because it's really complicated. And so then we've now started to go two first authors, two last authors, just because we have so many people. And then generally I or someone else from the data coordinating center is like third because we're doing most of the coordinating of the paper. And then if you contribute data, you're an author. Was there a tubular secretion from Matt?
2: Yes, uh, so my secretion is going to be a shout out to the Basic Research Forum for Emerging Kidney Scientists pre-meeting at ASN. We're very happy. We just got awarded an R13. Um and that's very exciting. A lot of work went into that. I have to give a shout out to um Alan Rodon who pretty much did about 98% of the work and maybe I did 1%, but we got it and so it'd be really cool. Um Jenny is in, involved in helping out with this as well and heading up all the mentorship things that we're going to do. We have three sessions for junior faculty. We're going to announce those next week. Uh, But really excited about a debate that night, and it's going to be about acute kidney injury. Uh, Sylvie uh, Breton from Mass General is going to talk about some really interesting um, science that she's been doing where identified how intercalated cells are really important in the sensing of AKI and and kind of causing it. And then Paul O'Connor, uh it from augusta university or medical college of georgia is going to give his theory of vascular congestion and sort of two opposing views of how aki develops and that'll be really fun so that's going to be on wednesday the day before kidney week october 21st you can sign up at ASN's website okay excellent there we go we're good thanks everybody this is great you can stop your recordings now